My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As we start this time of prayer, perhaps we could consider two scenes at the same time. And both of these scenes could help us to focus on the theme of today's prayer. The first scene is the scene in which Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple and present him to Simeon. And we know that this is a great moment of, sa- of, of both happiness and also a little bit of sadness for the Holy Family. Because on the one hand, <clears throat> Simeon blesses them and he blesses Mary the, Mary the mother. He prays a prayer of how Jesus Christ is going to be the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. And this causes a legitimate and a healthy awe both in Mary and in Joseph. An awe which we, we can understand. It's an awe of, of happiness, of, of genuine good human pride in their son. But then Simeon says that the child will be a sign of contradiction. And he turns to Mary and says, Your own soul a sword shall pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. The other scene is later in the public life of Jesus Christ. This is right after a number of Christ's apostles have left him. They've left him because, on the one hand, he has proclaimed the reality of the Eucharist. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. And they find this teaching so radical, so incomprehensible, that they no longer walk with him. And then a whole other host of Jews who believed in him stopped following him. In fact, they wanted to stone him to death because he, so he told them, before Abraham was, I am, that I am God who exists before the foundation of the world and you will die in your sins. And they couldn't accept that. And at this moment, Jesus and his disciples They're walking near the temple and they see a man blind from birth. And the disciples ask what for them was a natural question. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? The puzzle here And what we want to pray and talk with our Lord about today is 
the reality of sin. And it's the reality of sin that leads to, that could potentially lead to discouragement, that could potentially lead to a lack of, a, a lack of abandonment, that could lead to us to fail to trust in God. And it's not only, I don't only want, I don't only want to pray about today sin in the sense of the effects of original sin and our own sins, but also the circumstances of life which can cause us great difficulty. Those circumstances in life in which we suffer something like the blindness of this man. When we suffer the blindness of this man, the equivalent of the blindness of this man, well, there, there could be many things. There, there could be infertility, unemployment, sicknesses of various sorts. And then, of course, both in the Gospel of Luke and throughout the Gospels, we also see the difficulty, the heartache that can come from being aware or being made aware of the sins, the vices, the imperfections, the defects of those around us, oftentimes the ones that can cause an even greater struggle for us is the sins of those closest to us. Sins that shock us because we never thought that they could happen. <clears throat> and as we turn to our Lord in prayer, on the one hand, we don't want particular memories to become distractions. So often, the first way that the devil tempts us when this topic comes up or the first thing that can happen is that we can recall the effects of sin. We can recall, we have memories, we have an imagination, we can imagine potential future actions, and a potential distraction in our prayer could be that well, we, we allow those memories, we allow the imagination to overwhelm us to the point where, well, we lose sight of our Lord. And this is why it's very helpful in these times of prayer, if we can't do them in a chapel, that we do do the prayer. We have a crucifix close at hand, one that we can look at, one that we can contemplate or meditate on. That doesn't mean that we suppress these memories. It doesn't mean that we forget about them necessarily because they have, a, they have a role. They have a purpose in our interior lives that God has foreseen. But we want our primary focus to be Jesus Christ on the cross. A few years back, I was visiting a relative who had gotten sick and when we, when I got there, this relative who had gotten sick wanted to still live as normal a life as possible. 
And so my brother told me that we were going to go to a high school basketball game to watch his niece. And, and on the way to the game, my brother told me that we were going to meet a fellow, perhaps at halftime or maybe not at all because we weren't sure who had brain cancer. And the prognosis was not good and it made the sickness of our relative seem minor in comparison. And but that we should just be ready for meeting this fellow. And I was recently ordained a priest, so <clears throat> as we drove and during the first half of this game, I was thinking, well, what could I say to what could I say to a person like this? Or what should I say? I was asking for light. And halftime came and we walked out and we came across the man and the person apologized to us. He said, I, I know I'm a little bit spacey looking. I know I'm a little bit spaced out. The, the chemotherapy is cooking my brain. But then he pulled out a little notebook and he asked each of us for our names. And then he asked each of us for something that he could pray for on our behalf. And this was all quite surprising to me. It's not exactly what, what I expected. And after he wrote down our names and then he wrote down one or two prayer intentions for each one of us, he said, I was living a terrible life before I got this cancer. I was not the father. I was not the husband that God wanted me to be. And when I got this cancer, I went to a priest and I went to a priest in, in rage, saying, why did God do this to me? And the priest's answer to me was, God has brought you closer to the cross. You are now, in these next few years, going to be very close to the cross. And because you are going to be very close to the cross in your sufferings, Jesus will hear you. He will hear your pleas. He will hear your petitions. He will, you will be more united to him, offering up sacrifices for your own sins and for the sins of others. And the fellow said, those words changed me. Those words enabled me to deal with the circumstances that I'm in. And they made me realize that in this suffering that I'm going through, I can be very close to Jesus Christ on the cross. I can pray for those who need it. And I see that you need it, so I will pray for you. It could be that we could stop and as we should always be willing to do in these times of prayer, to stop and to spend time contemplating, which is what we do in, the, in prayer, is we, we don't just listen to what the priest says, but we, we stop and we consider the qualities of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. We consider what he says to us, what he does, and we ask him for his grace. We ask him 
for his help in applying his graces to the circumstances of our life. And when Jesus answers his disciples who had asked the question, has this man sinned or his parents that he should be born blind? Jesus says in this particular case, it's not that the man sinned and it's not that his parents sinned but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The disciples were asking a question that is a typical question of the Old Testament because there are several punishments, there are several passages in the Old Testament that explain that when parents sin, the effects of the sin will fall on the children. And there are other parents, there are other passages in the Old Testament that say that, well, no, God doesn't necessarily extend the punishment generation after generation, but those people who do sin, they are, there could be physical effects of their sins that we see. And this is the way the, the apostles aren't thinking this way in any kind of bad sense. It's just this is what the Old Testament tells us. There's also, this, there's also the book of Job. Job is a little bit of a different case because Job was a just man. Job saw he had a large family. He saw his children partying a little bit too much. And so he would offer sacrifices for just in case they were doing anything inappropriate at their parties. And he was a just man. And then he's afflicted. He's afflicted in, in all the ways that St. John Chrysostom says show the, the difference ultimately between the Old Testament, pagan religions, and Christianity. And that his wife is taken away Sorry, his children are taken away. His land is taken away. His health is taken away. And St. John Chrysostom says Job gives us a kind of picture of, well, what was expected of the law. And that, and also what was expected even under pagan, in pagan religions, that the picture is, is this, that in the case of pagan religions, if you live the superstitions outlined, by the religion, the gods will favor you. They will give you wives, children, land, success, and you will beat your enemies in battle. And the Old Testament, there was a little bit of a difference. In the Old Testament, if you keep the law, you will be given wives, children, land, success, and you'll always beat your enemies in battle. And so we meet Job, and Job loses his children, loses his land, fails as far as his health, and seems like a defeated man. And so when Job is in these series of discussions 
with the elders and his friends that come to speak with him, they all try to convince Job just to admit that he must have sinned in some way. And Job refuses to do so. By the end of the book of Job, God makes it clear to him that he is God, that he sees the reason for everything that has happened from the foundation of the world to the present. He knows Job better than Job knows Job. He knows the circumstances better than Job knows Job. And God revealing himself in this way to Job leads Job to say, especially in chapter 42, after God and Job have had a little three or four chapter discussion here about the nature of God and the nature of man. But in chapter 42, Job makes the resolution, I will amend myself. I will do penance. Another example we have from the Old Testament is the book of Joseph, the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Exodus. Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers selling him into slavery is a sign of the greatest infidelity against the family bond. When we're, when we're married and we have children, there are real bonds that we create with each other or that God creates with us. And Joseph and his brothers, especially his brothers, they sin against the bond. They sin against the most intimate, familial bond that one could imagine. They don't go as far as murdering him, but they sell him into slavery. I suppose, Lord, we can understand that, well, that doesn't happen to us necessarily, but we can understand that we have real bonds that we have created or that you have created between us and the pain that Joseph must have gone through, the pain that we go through, when we realize that there has been great harm committed against these bonds. This leads Joseph through a series of ups and downs of life. Some of them are great. Some of them involve suffering. But by the end of the ups and downs in life, Joseph is eventually reunited with his father and he's reunited with his brothers because he's made eventually the equivalent of the prime minister of Egypt, the steward of Egypt in a time of famine, which leads his family, his brothers, to come to Egypt in search of grain. And Joseph provides for them. And then at the very end of the book of Genesis, the brothers... Once the reunion has happened and the father has died, the brothers speak to Joseph and they, they basically concoct a lie that they want to tell him that, well, they know that Joseph could take vengeance out on them. And so they start to say the lie that they concocted, which is, well, dad, before he died, he told us not to, that maybe you shouldn't take vengeance on us. 
And Joseph stops them. He says, there's, there's no need to say anything. There's no need to comment. Why? Because the evil that you intended to me, from that, God has drawn great good. This is one of the qualities that defines God. God is capable of drawing good from evil. Evil can be our perception of evil because we see our own limitations, the limitations of health, the limitations of the way society functions, the limitations that come from the sin and its effects as they grow in society, and also suffering or evil that we can feel because of the sins of others. Joseph, God gave Joseph a grace to realize that God has this one quality that no other being in the universe has, that he can draw good from evil. And there's even more involved here. There's more involved here because as Jesus tells his apostles in the case of the man who was born sick or who was born blind, neither this man nor his parents have sinned but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Jesus doesn't deny that maladies could be the result of sin. He doesn't deny. In fact, if we study original sin, we, we know this, as the Catechism reminds us. Adam and Eve, when they sin, and their sin they live, there's a solidarity with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are responsible for the entire human race in this temptation that they undergo that leads to sin. Once they sin, what happens? They become afraid of God. They create a distorted image of God. They lose the capacity to see that God is a merciful Father and that He can draw good out of evil. Their spiritual faculties are shattered. The, the healthy dominion or the healthy direction that the soul gives to the body, the union between man and woman, the direction in the soul of the intellect and the will over the passions. <clears throat> man, after the fall, is now subject to bondage and decay. to disobedience, to not see correctly all the relationships of life. And we see also after original sin, the Catechism lays it out for us in a fine summary fashion, the world becomes inundated by sin. The murder, Cain's murder of Abel, and the next several chapters of, of Genesis lay out the proliferation of sin, this infidelity to God, infidelity to the bonds that God creates with the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And then precisely Jesus Christ comes to perform a work. And 
the work that he performs is, well, in this case, it's to make a blind man see. It's a miracle. It's a miracle on par with the creation of the universe. As the blind man will eventually tell the Pharisees, not since the foundation of the world has it ever been known that someone has caused a blind man to see. Jesus Christ has created an eye. And not only that, we know that we know now from science that people who do obtain their sight after losing it, they can become they can be very disoriented in the first moments because well the whole inner workings of the body have to start adjusting to these new circumstances. And Jesus Christ also gives this man this, this orientation. And it, so he gives him so many things that have never been given to someone before. And he does this using clay. Clay here meaning dirt. It has no medicinal qualities. But Jesus uses clay and his spittle in order to anoint the eyes of the blind man and to heal him. If we could return to what St. John Chrysostom told us about the difference between pagans, the Jews of the Old Testament, and Christians, one of the differences St. John Chrysostom says is that, well, Christians, we have spiritual children, Spiritual children that are the fruit of our prayer, of our sufferings, of our penance. And we, we lose our property. We lose, that, we lose all the marks of success. Why? Because we, at different moments in our life, and perhaps throughout our lives, are united to Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what produces also spiritual children. So Christians are different. We don't look to the world for success. We don't see success as a sign that God is on our side. In fact, when it seems like there's a failure, when it seems like things are falling around, around us, that's precisely when Jesus Christ is closest to us. That's precisely when we unite ourselves to him in the effects, in, in feeling the effects of sin, whether it's our own, whether it's original sin or others, that the works of God are being done in us. St. Paul had to deal with this mentality among the first Christians, especially among the Galatians, but also the Corinthians, who found it difficult to grow as children of God, to continue trusting God the Father, Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Because, well, just for example, when he's writing to the Galatians, He's writing to them. They're, they're having this, 
<clears throat> this uh, debate over whether public knowledge of a medical procedure, a medical procedure that had religious connotations in chapter 6 of, the, of Galatians, whether public knowledge of this uh, was, was good or not, or allowed someone to remain in the synagogue or to remain in the church or not. And St. Paul is getting to the heart of the matter. He says, our, our goal here is not to please each other in the flesh. Our goal is to suffer with Jesus Christ on the cross. Neither they who are circumcised or uncircumcised. None of them, none of that leads us to happiness. What, what leads us to happiness is that we should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. In Jesus Christ, vaccine passports, medical procedures, they don't mean anything. What matters in Jesus Christ is that we are new spiritual creatures. And whoever follows this rule, St. Paul says, peace and mercy and the, the God of Israel will come upon them. For me, St. Paul says, I bear the marks of our Lord Jesus Christ in my flesh. St. Paul reminds us, yes, there will be moments, or the Holy Spirit reminds us, yes, there will be moments in our life when, as Simeon told Mary, our hearts are wounded, our souls are pierced with a sword. There will be moments like the man born blind where people will look at us and they will say, well, it, it must be your sin or the sin of someone close to you that has caused this to happen to you. But ultimately, Jesus Christ reminds us through the cross, even in these sufferings, even in these difficult circumstances, the works of God can be done. Only I, Jesus Christ, can create good out of evil. Only I can lead through any difficult situation, each person, each soul, to its final eternal destiny with the Blessed Trinity in heaven. As we end this time of prayer, let's turn to Mary and ask her for her intercession at the foot of the cross to keep our hope alive, to keep us abandoned and trusting in divine providence in the difficult moments of this life. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.